Welcome to another episode of Visitings, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. My name is Alan Nakagawa, and I'll be your host. Jit Sonorama is Chip Thomas's street art moniker. He's been creating street art uh, first in text alterations of billboard advertisements and now with monumental photo-based paste-ups. He's also a doctor who has dedicated his practice and life to a Navajo community in Arizona. Uh, that's where he spoke to us uh, from in late February of 2018. You can learn more about his work at www.jetsonorama.net. I'll spell that. J-E-T-S-O-N-O-R-A-M-A dot net. Well, you know, it speaks, though, to a bigger issue with um, the use of resources, the distribution of resources, um, yeah, especially here on the reservation where I live and work, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. there's a real issue with infrastructure, um, and yeah, it's <laughs> just one of those things. My my name is Chip Thomas, um, and I live and work in northern Arizona on the Diné Nation, and my street art name is Jetsonorama. Good morning. <laughs> and um, how did you come about uh, de- really dedicating your life to that region and that population? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's not anything that I planned, per se. Um, in retrospect, I mean, I think it might be easy now to look back and see some instrumental things that happened in my life that kind of led me to to being here and feeling comfortable staying here. Um, one of those examples oh. an alternative Quaker school in the mountains of North Carolina um, that was a boarding school from 69 through 72, which was a fascinating time in our history. Um, and, yeah, just being in that environment, being in an intentional community where um, decisions were achieved by consensus mm-hmm. and um, there was an emphasis on process um, and building community and becoming a contributing part of a community um, having been exposed to that and learned, having lived that uh, for three years at a formative time in my life, I think led to me coming here to do the work I do as a physician and um, feeling comfortable just being in a very open space, being out in nature and appreciating the nature that is here. And then um, I think also from the Quaker experience, um, seeking consistency between all the parts of my life such that my art practice uh, very much complements my work. And, yeah, so that's how it all kind of fell into place. So let's unpack some of that. <laughs> uh, could we start with the Quakers? How did you... I assume you were there with your family? 
No. No. <laughs> oh. No. Okay. Yeah, so it was a fascinating thing in that it was 1969. The Raleigh oh. public school system, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, oh. was desegregated in 1968. So there was forced busing. And um, so my primary school education, grades one through six, was in a neighborhood school where I could, you know, walk um, 150 yards to the school. And it was an all-black school. Um, but then with the desegregation that was occurring in 68, um, I was looking at being bused across town to a predominantly white school. And in 68, the year that the desegregation started, there was a lot of violence both on the buses and in the schools. And my parents wanted me to avoid that. So they were looking at putting me in a military institute. Um, there were a lot of military boarding schools scattered throughout the South um, at the junior high and high school level. And again, this was 69, you know, during the height of the uh, anti-Vietnam movement. Um, but it just so happened that in the summer of 69, which was the summer of Woodstock, my, my parents took a cruise to the Bahamas, and they took my grandmother with them. And normally I would stay with my grandma on a trip like that when my parents left. But um, so my parents heard about a, a Quaker camp up in the mountains of North Carolina that just happened to coincide with the three weeks my parents were going to be away. So I got to go and be in this environment where there was bareback horseback riding and hiking and camping up in the tallest mountain range east of the Mississippi, which is the Black Mountains, um, and playing in the South Toe River and taking part in plays and playing dress-up and just doing this amazing stuff as a kid. <laughs> um, so to go from my all-black neighborhood to this camp... <laughs> where I had that type of experience, um, I met kids at the camp who were going to the school, the Arkham Oregon School, which was just across the, the field from where the camp was. Um, and when my parents came to pick me up, um, I had my dad talk with the camp counselor, Bob Barris, who was also a teacher at the school. And it was cool because my father said <laughs> he felt such a feeling of love um, in talking with Bob Barris that he felt I would be safe in that environment and it would be a good place for me to go. So that's how I got to go to that Quaker school. Now, I read a little bit of uh, some information on your work and uh, you're African-American? Yeah. Is that, uh, was that school... Uh, fairly multicultural? Well, not, well, okay, so there were 24 kids in the entire school, grades 7, 8, 9. Um, but, and there were, I was one of three African-American students. Um, but there was a kid from Alaska. There was a girl whose parents had been missionaries in Africa. There was a girl from France, a girl from Canada. Um, so um, there were a lot of Jewish kids uh, from New York and Florida. Um, so, no, it wasn't um, like there were no 
I'm trying to think if there were any Asians during the time I was there. I don't think there were. Uh, no people who were of Latin descent. So it wasn't super mixed, but 468 <laughs> in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, yeah, there were three African-Americans and 21 white kids. For for I'm I was born and raised in Los Angeles, so I've never been to North Carolina, but I've yeah. heard a lot of things, and for <laughs> that to have happened during that period of time is uh, kind of a miracle. Or well, okay, so here of. let's is that true? Let's 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 talk about miracles for for okay. a second. Okay. <laughs> you're you're in Los Angeles, right? Um, yeah, so during the 50s, my father, um, who was born and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina, as an only child, um, you know, he was born in the early 20s, but in the early 50s, he got turned on to the autobiography of a, of a yogi, the life story of Paramahansa and Yogananda, um, and how he achieved um, Christ consciousness <laughs> uh-huh. um, through, through his yoga practice. And I, there's a connection to L.A. because he actually had an ashram yeah. there in L.A. In uh, um, Washington. It, it could be. Yeah. No, yeah, I've been there. So my, my father <laughs> practiced yoga every day, um, from the 1950s until he passed away, so he was he was receptive when I when I told the story and said that my father said he was just touched by a feeling of love coming from Bob Harris. That's what his vibe was, you know. So I mean, it seems unusual and unlikely that my parents would have been open to that Quaker school, but man, my mom wasn't open to it. She was a school teacher in the public school system and didn't get this alternative education mm. thing. <laughs> but my dad was focused on something totally different, which, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your, your mom and dad? Um, yeah, so let's see. <laughs> um, they were both born in the early 20s in North Carolina. My mom is from, was from Gastonia. Um, in the Piedmont, the central part of the state. Uh, my father was from uh, Wilmington, and he told me this. He, he was an only child, and he was raised in a home where his father um, wasn't present for most of his life. He said the happiest day of his life was when he was 16 and he came home and learned that his father had been out fishing on the Cape Fear River, had been drinking as he normally did, and couldn't swim, fell overboard, and drowned. Oh, no. <laughs> and he said that was the happiest day of his life because his father was the meanest person he knew. His father abused him and his mom. Um, such that my dad was happy to see him go. Mm-hmm. But he went on to become the valedictorian of his high school. Um, 
he went to Shaw University on scholarship. He did well enough there that during World War II, when he was drafted, he, um, I don't know what the tests are that um, they were taking then, but my father did well enough that he was um, asked to be, he was picked to go to officer training school in the Navy and was one of the first uh, 13 African-American officers in the Navy in World War II. And um, never saw any action, but um, after World War II, then went to Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, became a physician, and practiced in North Carolina. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So, yeah, he was, he was an influence, obviously, on me going into medicine. And we're gonna we're gonna uh, fly over several uh, years or decades. But how did you come to uh, end up in Arizona? Oh yeah. So the way I like to tell that story, yeah. um, actually, here let me get a drink of water ever so quickly. In the 1960s, one of the last times our country had a social conscience, Mm. um, (laughs) there was a program um, out of the Kennedy-Johnson administration called the Great Society, and um, it was a part of the war on poverty. And um, from the war on poverty came programs like the Peace Corps, uh, VISTA, which was Volunteers in Service to America, um, which became Teach for America. And um, there was the National Health Service Corps. And the National Health Service Corps is an incentive program to get people going into healthcare, uh, mainly into medical school and dental school. to go to communities to practice where they wouldn't normally consider going, mental health shortage areas. Um, And it's a year-for-year type of exchange with the minimum being two years, the maximum being four years, such that I was a National Health Service Corps scholar for four years. And when I finished my training, I knew I had to work in a health shortage area for four years. And, yeah, I had a friend from med school. <laughs> I, I laughed because um, <laughs> I've told this story before, and I haven't acknowledged the role this person played in getting me to this space, to oh. where I am now. And who but is it this? Was, yeah. Exactly? Well, yeah, her name is um, La, La Vera Crawley, or Peggy Crawley. And um, she was... A dear friend when I was in med school, she was a couple years ahead of me. Um, she, after leaving the Harry in Nashville, went to San Francisco to UCSF, where she was. She and her husband at the time became co-chief residents in the family medicine department. But they were also National Health Service Corps scholars, and um, they both had four-year obligations. And they did their first year here in '86. And it was Peggy who told me, 
of the opening here, and she said, I really think it will resonate with you, (laughs) not knowing. (laughs) Well, maybe she did know it would resonate with me to the extent that it has, but yeah, she's really responsible for me coming out. Oh, so as of July of this year, I will have been here for 31 years. Wow. (laughs) That's phenomenal. Well, it's pretty amazing (laughs) being an intergenerational family practice physician Mm. um, on a traditional indigenous um, uh, nation. Yeah. And and what do you mean by that? Well, so I have been here long enough working with this group of people, with this community of people, that women who I took care of in their pregnancies when I first came, mm-hmm. I'm taking care of their daughters and their pregnancies wow. um, in the exact same examination room. You know, so I have years of histories. I mean, years of working um, with families and mm-hmm. learning their stories. And yeah, so it just makes that part of my relationship as a physician working with generations. Um, very special. That's beautiful. Yeah. Are you, um, I mean, I'm reading into this, but so is that part of what inspired you to begin this practice of, uh, public art? Um, yeah, actually. So just to yeah speak a little bit about that. I have always been passionate about street art, and in fact, the first time I went into a dark room and got a camera and started shooting black and white film was at this Quaker school I was telling you about in '69. Yeah, um, and I've always enjoyed attempting to tell stories using photographs, you know, like a documentarian. Um, but not just a photo documentarian, but yes, yeah, a visual storyteller. Um, and, um, it had, so every five years, starting in 1992, I do a sabbatical where I, um, take off and, um, now I go away for three months and just go to a different part of the world. In 2009, I was in Brazil and for the last three weeks of that trip, every day I was with people who were going out onto the street making street art. Mm-hmm. And excuse me. No, no, I I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just a wonderful thing being part of such a creative community of people who um, enjoy working in the public space and creating in the public space and having interactions with the public while they were making art. Um, and a lot of questions I had about how it was done. Um, I began to understand more of the process. And just before I left Brazil, I saw photos of an installation by J.J.R. In, in Rio. And it was a revelation because it was the first time I saw how a photograph could be used as a street art medium. Oh. And yeah, it was like, it was it was the uh, missing link for me because um, I've been experimenting with making big prints, um, like four feet by four feet, 
in my dark in my dark room. But I yeah, I was I couldn't figure out how to make big prints until I saw the work of J of J R. Um, and I invited him to come here in 2009 to do a project. And uh, I never heard anything, but during the time I was driving around the reservation, I'd wonder how he would approach such a project and where he would put his photos. And, yeah, so to make a long story short, um, there is a lot of tourists who pass through this area. There's roadside stands here where people still sell jewelry Mm -hmm. that they make. And what I found was that in putting photos... On those stands, they were having more tourists stop to check out the art, which led to conversations, which um, sometimes led to more sales. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the vendors appreciated, you know, getting this art, and it became a win-win situation. But it's a fascinating thing in that um, where I live and work, the land size is larger than the state of West Virginia, is 27,500 square miles in size, is home to roughly 180,000 people. Wow. There's five five natural resources here that are being exploited, which include coal, oil, natural gas, and uranium. Mm. And there's also water in in aquifers. Um, The Navajo people with those resources should be the richest group of people living in the United States. Mm-hmm. But, be- but because of the way the contracts were written for those resources, they are not. <laughs> and like 20% of my patients now don't have running water or electricity. Wow. Yet there's coal, oil, natural gas, and, and uranium, and water in aquifers here. Um, so with that... Material poverty comes from challenges, <clears throat> such as, yeah, there are some issues on parts of the reservation with alcohol abuse, with drug abuse, with the teen suicide rate is quite high. So the imagery that I put along the roadside is to reflect back to the community some of the beauty that they've shared with me over the past 30 years, and hopefully to create an environment of wellness in the community. Wow. When did you start doing this work? 2009. Yeah, when I first started out, people didn't know that I was the one doing it. (laughs) But (laughs) within the past two to three years, um, there I've Local TV has interviewed me, and there have been some articles published, so more and more of my patients know that I'm the person doing it. And what I think they perceive from my work from this project is similar to what my father perceived in talking with Bob Barris at the Quaker School. Just hopefully it's a real feeling of love and concern that's coming across. Have you had an experience, and I'm, I'm hoping you have, where you put a piece up and the person in the piece uh, interacts with you afterwards? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, 
that happens all the time. Oh, can you yeah. share one? Is that okay? Uh, yeah, I mean, I um, well, maybe I'm not understanding what you're saying, but I I'm I mean, I know everyone who oh, that's I'm, right. I'm I'm photographing, and now and they I know that you're the guy who puts it up. Excuse me. Now they are aware that you're the one who, who yeah. is putting it. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, and so in I truth, I mean, I do it with their with their full consent. It, right. <laughs> it would be a, a horrible surprise uh, for me to take some photos of someone and then blow them up with um, and put them along the ro- a roadside, but not having that conversation with them. So oh. no, people. Oh. So even in the beginning, you you told them that you were going to do this, and is it okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. One day, I, I didn't necessarily tell them as much as I talked with them, um, telling them what the intention of the project is and mm-hmm. asking if I can use imagery in that way. But I was just, you know, at that time talking with a few families, um, getting their consent, then going out at night and putting the work up such that the majority of people who saw the work had no idea where it was coming from or why. So that's mm-hmm. been an interesting thing, doing this work in an indigenous community that, you know, has some history with photographs um, and photography being used negatively. Um, And also introducing a medium of expression that isn't common here on the reservation. You know, there's not necessarily a tradition here of muralism or public art. Hmm. Yeah. there are people who question um, whether they are being witched and seeing some of this, Im- this imagery. Oh. Um, if it's, yeah, if it's an image of someone who has passed away, then that 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 shouldn't be up. I so, see. yeah, no, it's been a it's 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 been a really wonderful conversation with the community and learning. Um, just learning from them. Wow. Yeah. I can say that in 2012, I started inviting artists from different parts of the world out to spend time on the reservation to engage the community and then to paint murals for people here on the res. Mm. Um, And one of the people I brought out last year, um, um, her name is Kate, Kate D. D. Cicio. She's now based in Oakland. Um, Spent three weeks at a community that's pretty isolated. It's um, about 45 miles from me. Mm -hmm. Um, A community of a thousand people that has real challenges with um, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, suicide. And in the three weeks she was there, she engaged the community and did some painting mural projects with some youth in the community. And she was getting feedback from them Mm -hmm. that um, it was an incredibly meaningful experience to learn those skills to express themselves in that way and just how frustrated they are not having this type of opportunity on a regular basis. So one of the things that I'm doing is um, applying to different grant possibilities to get um, enough money to have that type of engagement with this community over the course of a year or two. Oh, that's great. Uh, Yeah. 
deeper. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. I my my hope is that people listen to these things and then they investigate the artist's work. Uh, your yeah. your work is online, right? What's your website? Yeah, yeah, it's um, at jetsonorama.net. Um, and then, of course, I have to ask the question: Why did you pick Jetsonorama <laughs> as, as your as the name? Yeah. Okay. So my my real name is James Edward Thomas. My initials are J E T, which I always dug as a kid. Um, and being a child of the '60s, one of my favorite TV shows on Saturday mornings was The Jetsons. Um, my first dog, which I got when I was about six or seven, um, was named Jetson. And <laughs> <laughs> when I went to get Jetson at Gmail as my email address, Mr. Google said, "That's been taken. Try one of these other three options, which included Jetsonorama." Now, as a big fan of mid-century modernism and atomic age imagery, um, I really love the O-Rama reference. Uh, reference. <laughs> and so, yeah, I have Google to thank for my for my street <laughs> art name. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Perfectly random. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it works. <laughs> that concludes another episode of Visitings. Thanks to Jet Sonorama for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, as always, to the Echo Park Film Center and Dove Lab for letting me share this. I'm Alan Nakagawa sitting in my living room in Koreatown saying thank you for listening to Visitings. <laughs>